You're listening to audio from Christ Community Church in Fishers, Indiana. Our mission is to develop disciples of Jesus to impact the world. If you'd like to find out more information about us or donate to our ministry, please visit us at our website at cccfishers.org. Thanks for joining us. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Human beings are storytellers. And for thousands of years, we, uh, stories have been a significant part of human communication. You can imagine thousands of years ago, cavemen gathering around a fire somewhere, telling stories of past hunts. They would tell stories of the hunts that went well. They would tell stories of the hunts that had failed. They would tell stories of the places that they went and the new things that they discovered, of the tribes of people that they met, what tribes were friendly and helpful and what tribes should be avoided. These stories, on the one hand, were a way for them to entertain themselves, but you can also imagine, and probably even more so, you can see that the stories would be educational. And this has continued on, not just from cavemen, but all the way through human history to this very day. Stories are places where we learn about the highest ideals of humanity, about the rewards of grit and perseverance and humility and character. We learn about how we can relate to one another, about the power of compassion and the wonder of reconciliation. Stories not only help us connect with our humanity, but they're a way in which we embed facts and figures into our being stories in so many ways are essential to being human. And science is just now catching up to this fact, this thing that we've long known. Through imaging technology, they've been able to see what happens in people's brains as they listen and tell stories. There's a study that was done in which they hooked up the things to people's minds, both to the storyteller and to those who are listening to the story. And they watched what was going on in their brains at the same time. And they found that as the person told the story, the insula, the part of their brain which controls morality and, and compassion, began to light up. So the person who's telling the story is becoming more open to compassion. They're thinking about morality or at least sensing morality in some way. It's triggering their brain. But what was really fascinating is that in the brains of those who were listening to the story, the same part of the brain lit up. In other words, through story, our brains begin to mimic one another. Ah, This is the power of story. 
story opens us up to another story, opens us up to the possibility of seeing reality from a new perspective. What we find in Acts chapter 6, in the middle of Acts chapter 6, and then what continues through chapter 7 is a clashing of stories. You have one story that is being told by the Jews in the synagogue, and then you have the story that Stephen tells. These stories have all the same players. It's the same history. It's the same events. But they emphasize different parts of the story, and this different emphasis impacts the meaning of the story and the response to the story. So if we just start with the Jews in the synagogue, when they heard that Stephen, uh, when they heard Stephen teaching and they saw the signs and the wonders that he was doing, we're told in the text that they couldn't take it any longer. So they get some people to accuse Stephen of blasphemy and then they get others to be false witnesses that claim that Stephen is undermining Moses, the law and the temple. And the story that they understood, the story that was central to them, and the story that they were trying to protect was a story that had been handed down to them for centuries. It's the story of their history as a people. God had spoken to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob and established his covenant with them. The descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be a unique people, a special people. They were to be a holy nation. They were to be a nation that was set apart from all others, a people with a unique covenantal relationship with God. God would be their God. They would be God's people. And God walked with this people. And then they found themselves enslaved in Egypt. And then... Under the impression there, they cried out and God heard their cry. So God raised up Moses. Moses then acted on God's behalf and led the people out of slavery. Led them to Mount Sinai where God reestablished his covenant. Gave them the law. Said, this is how you will be a holy people. This is what it looks like to live into this kind of nation that I'm calling you to be. And then God began to promise them that a Messiah would come and would forever establish Israel's kingdom and heaven's rule on earth would be realized through them as a people. Through this people and through this Messiah, God would make himself known to the world. This was the story that those Jews in the synagogue were convinced of. And it was a story that they believed that they rightly understood. And so when their story begins to be threatened, when it feels like it's being undermined, when it feels like these people are coming in from the outside or maybe even from within the inside and they're twisting it and changing it, well, we can't stand for that. So they label Stephen a liar and a blasphemer. I mean, you could say they told a story that Stephen was trying to subvert the law and Moses and the temple. Which leads to the apprehension of Stephen. And when Stephen is arrested and once again finds himself in front of the Sanhedrin, the very Sanhedrin that Peter and John and the rest of the apostles were just before last week, Stephen tells a story. And it's the same story. It's the story that the people loved. It's a story that the people cherished. But Stephen in telling this exact same story, tells it from just a little different perspective. Includes some details that maybe got left out. And those details and that slightly different perspective changes everything. So listen, we'll start in chapter 7. 
what I just outlined before was what happened in the second half of chapter 6 and starting at verse 1 of chapter 7. Then the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? To this Stephen replied, Brothers and good fathers, or brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they, served at, they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision. And Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the twelve patriarchs. Because the patriarchs were zealous or jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph, wis- Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him a ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering on our ancestors, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the sons of Hamor at Shechem for a certain sum of money. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of our people in Egypt had greatly increased. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. He dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our ancestors by forcing them to throw out their newborn babies so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. For three months, he was cared for by his family. When he was placed outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and brought him up as her own son. Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptian and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his own people, the Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian. So he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came up to two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in the flame of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. When he saw this, he was amazed at the sight. And as he went over to get a closer look, he heard the Lord say, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. 
Then the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to set them free. Now come, I will send you back to Egypt. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. And he received living words to pass on to us. But our ancestors refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time that they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and reveled in what their own hands had made. But God turned away from them and gave them over to worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written by the, in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings? Forty years in the wilderness, people of Israel. Did you have taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Raphan, the idols you made to worship? Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant of the law with them in the wilderness, It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, The Most High does not live in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Again, Stephen's story that he tells before the Sanhedrin has all the same points that the people in the synagogue, the the Pharisees and the religious leaders, this is the same story that they loved. It's the same story they grew up hearing. It was the same story they told. But Stephen points out things that often, I'm guessing, did not get told. 
He pointed out that the patriarchs, the, tw- the patriarchs, the 12 sons of Jacob, who would be the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel, resisted their brother Joseph and sold him into slavery. That, that, uh, that fact led Israel to Egypt, where in a generation they found themselves as a nation enslaved. And so God responds by raising up Moses. But again, the people resisted Moses. Not just once, not after he just killed the, killed the Egyptian, but twice after Moses gives them the law on Mount Sinai and the people ask instead for a golden calf. Then the people resist the prophets by overly emphasizing the temple. And they resist the prophets and the promise of a righteous one who will come. And this righteous one is Jesus. I mean, Stephen is emphasizing in his telling of the story, the resistance of the people. And just as he starts getting rolling, just as he begins to drive that point home, and you can finally see where he's taking the story, the people resist. The people rise up and they storm him and kill him. Why? It's the same story. And I think it's because Stephen framed the story in such a way where they were no longer the hero. In the story that Stephen told, they became the antagonists. They were the ones driving the conflict. They were the ones stirring up the trouble. They were the ones resisting. God, the hero, the protagonist, kept trying to do something, kept trying to bring Israel closer to that holy nation, kept trying to invite them into a new way of being, and they kept pushing back, kept going back to Egypt, kept killing the prophets. And now Stephen says, you are doing the exact same thing. You are no different than your forefathers. Willie James Jennings says it like this, a new story is being told, but an old story is being lived at that very moment. Another prophet will soon die. Stories. Stories have the possibility of bringing out the worst in us. Some stories cause us to feel enmity towards others. Hitler told the stories, Hitler told Germany's story about the Jews, and it grew a nation's enmity towards another people group in their midst, so much so that they were willing to kill millions. The South's story of the subhumanness of African Americans justified treating people as beasts of burden. Pol Pot's stories about academics and oppositional leaders enabled the killing fields. Stories have the power to whip up the worst passions in us. To give meaning to the events around us in such a way that we act in heinous, vile ways. And we feel we do so with purpose. Because the story justifies it. Stories also have the power to motivate us to our best. They have the power to bring out the best of our humanity. Stories like MLK's 
constant pursuit for equality or Schindler's List as he sought to save as many Jewish people as he could or the God who becomes human in order to die on our behalf. Stories shape us. They shape the world that we live in and they shape the action that we take in the world. And because of the power of stories, it's all the more important for us to pay attention to the stories that we immerse ourselves in. Earlier I said that the imaging shows us that when we listen to stories, parts of our brain lights up. We begin to mimic another. Stories then can help us to connect to another person's perspective. But because of that, they can help us to connect to what is good, compassion, kindness, hope. But it can also connect us to what is detrimental. Anger and violence and enmity. Michael Sparks was one of the men who entered the Capitol building on January 6th. He was an evangelical Christian who was highly involved in his church. And at the end of 2020, during the final months of 2020, his social media posts became filled with with stories about the election and about hatred towards other groups. They were dominated by rage and enmity. There were stories that ultimately found their ultimate hope in politics, and they were troubling to many of his friends and his close ones. His friends and his pastor at church urged him to leave those stories behind. They, can, they talked with him about what they were seeing and how they saw these stories that he was sharing on social media, how they were affecting his personality, his emotions, his attitudes, how they believed these stories were pulling him away from the witness of Christ. And yet, he rejected them. Resisted them. Which makes me wonder if stories are so powerful, if they do cause us to connect with another person and to see something in, from a different perspective, why did Michael Sparks reject one story and accept another? If, if stories are so powerful, why did his pastor and his brothers and sisters who pointed him towards Jesus and reminded him of that, why did that not take root? And I think we have to remind ourselves that while stories are powerful, they are not magic. I mean, think about it. If you, well, if I, we're going to try to convince you that Michigan U-turns were the best possible intersection. Right? So, you know, Allisonville in 96, if you want to turn left, you can't turn left. You have to turn right, make the U-turn, and then go straight through. If I were to tell you stories about how many lives they've saved, about how it saved my life, I doubt that you would walk away going, I'm convinced that is the best one. My guess is you would still resist the truth of that, even though it is true. Or if I tried to convince you, Indiana Colts fan, of the greatness of Tom Brady, I likely would be stoned. <laughs> or if someone you know, maybe this is something that you have experienced with, someone doesn't believe the claims of who Jesus is, and yet I tell you about how Jesus is real to me. 
and about the ways that Jesus has impacted my life. And very likely, it's not going to cause instantaneous change. An immediate conversion isn't the norm. But if stories are so powerful, why not? And I think it's simply because we have years and years and years of telling ourselves the same story over and over and over and over. And the compound effect of that is we can no longer imagine the possibility of any other story. When I was in elementary school, I had a group of friends and we were extremely close. We we called ourselves the Three Musketeers because we were so close and so cool. And, but in middle school, that friend group broke up. And at the same time, there were kids that I was friendly with at church who, when we got to school, would no longer be friendly with me and would oftentimes make fun of me. And I began to tell myself this story that ultimately people will leave, that they'll either reject me or just sort of walk away. That given enough time, this is, just, this is what people do and this is how my relationships will turn out. And that is a story that, was told, that began there but was told over and over and over again. Every time that situation played out again with friends or with girlfriends or with churches or with jobs. So much so that that story became the dominant story. And it was hard to see anything else. It was hard to believe a, a different story. But just as God is not bound by the temple, so God is not bound by our stories. God exists outside of our stories and then invites us to join him, invites us to come up out of the story that we tell ourselves again and again and again so that we might be able to grasp a new story. And so the question then is, how do we allow the gospel story to pull us out of our stories, whatever story it might be, whether it's a personal story, whether it's a relational story, whether it's a political story, whether it's a, 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 an effectiveness story, a significant story, whatever the story might be, how do we allow the gospel story to pull us out so that we find ourselves immersed in, surrounded by, captivated by the gospel story? And I think it begins by examining the story that we are telling ourselves about who we are, about who God is, and then we hold that up to the story that God has told through his son, Jesus Christ. So we have to begin by acknowledging that we all tell stories. There may be stories about how no one really listens to us. About the fact that the, the idea that our opinion doesn't matter. They may be stories of rejection or they may be stories of our needs not being important. They may be stories about feeling insignificant or maybe on the flip side of that, there's stories about how important and great we are. And the, the funny thing about those stories is the stories that we tell are largely the same in terms of our relationship with each other and the relationship with God. So if I tell myself a story that I am insignificant in my relationship with other people, it's very likely I will tell myself a story that I am insignificant in my relationship with God. But God is drawing you into not your story, but God's story. 
God wants to pull you up out of yours so that a new story, God's story, may be the dominant one. And so once we have confronted our story, once we see it clearly for what it is, then we need to over and over again remind ourselves of the story that God is pulling us into. And here's the story that God is inviting you into. In the beginning, yeah, I'm going all the way back there. In the beginning, God, there was a divine being beyond comprehension who at their very core was love. Not anger, not vengeance, not self-indulgence, but at the core was love. And this being was so filled with love that God created a world that you and I have come to know as home. God filled this world with wonders and beauty and creatures and abundance. Uniquely placed, though, in the middle of this wonderful creation was human beings, creatures who bear the divine fingerprints. Yet despite the perfection of this world, these creatures rebelled against God's good order and brought chaos into the world. But upon the tainting of God's good creation, God did not respond with destruction. God did not respond by retaliating. God did not respond with enmity, but instead God made them close and covered their shame and promised to one day step on the head of the serpent's who deceived the man and the woman. And God fulfilled that promise. But God did it in a way that no one expected God to do it. Not with power, not with might, not with violence, but with an unparalleled act of love. God took on flesh and became one of us. Entered fully into the human experience so that from within God might redeem every part of our story. And so we find that fear becomes hope and suffering becomes joy and losing becomes victory and death becomes life. Every aspect of humanity has been brought under the mightest touch of this God who is making all things new. And if that wasn't good enough, God did not do this with ideas or philosophy or impersonal acts, but rather God did this with a personal relationship as one with a, as a father. Consistent with his character of love, God desires intimacy with his creation and with his creatures. And so he calls you daughter. God calls you son. This is who you are. This is your story. It is your story because it is God's story and God's story defines reality for all of us. And you're not the protagonist of the story and you're not the antagonist of the story. God is the protagonist and the antagonist is death and sin and the evil one. You, however, you are in God's story. You don't play a minor role for you play his beloved. The one that he chases after the one who he will not let go the one who he fights on behalf of our hero comes to save us this is your story because this is God's story 
and to every story that comes into your mind that seeks to counter it, to tell you that you must be powerful, that you must be better, that you must be significant, or that you're insignificant, and you're not good enough. To every story that comes into your mind, meet it with the story of the one who has come to save you. This is your story. Let us pray that we would not resist it. But may it move us. May it light up the different parts of our brain with hope and with compassion and with joy and with gratitude. May our hearts mimic the one who has told this story and is writing this story. This is our story because it's God's story. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the gospel. The greatest story that has ever not been told but been lived. The greatest story to be experienced. Lord, may we be witnesses to the wonder of this story in our lives and in the world and in all that you are doing. I pray that it would be the one that takes root in our brains, in our hearts, and in our souls. I pray that it would be the story that we tell ourselves over and over and over again. May it be the story that we write on the doorpost of our homes. May it be the story that we bind to our foreheads. May it be the story that we talk about as we come and as we go. May it shape us. May it shape how we act. May we never tire of hearing it and sharing it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.